0: Hey, this is Greg Graffin from Bad Religion. I'd like you to listen to Books on Pod with Trey. We just had a great talk about Bad Religion's new book that's out
1: there. Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion.
0: Hello, readers. David Polfelt is the managing director at Massive Entertainment whose work in gaming includes industry-defining AAA games such as Assassin's Creed Revelations, Far Cry 3, and Tom Clancy's Diversion, and he's now a published author. His new book is titled The Dream Architects, Adventures in the Video Game Industry. David, thank you for the time. How are you today?
1: Hey, Trey. How are you? I'm doing
0: fine. I'm doing great, David. Thank you for asking. Really love this book and looking forward to this conversation today.
1: Oh, me too. And I'm. uh, this is a part of my life that I enjoy tremendously. It's pure pleasure compared to making video games.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is one of the interesting things that I picked up from this book. Despite all the successes that you had, when you would get to the end of a project, it was an exhausting process for you and almost like a relief that it's something that you're not having to worry about anymore. Yes, it's
1: true. It's something that I thought about a lot. And I think that if you are passionate about it and you're take it seriously as a profession or as a craft, the emotions will be very mixed. It's unavoidable. I think you immerse yourself so much into it and you believe for a little period of time in your life that it's the only thing that is important. And you're with other people who enter into the same bubble where the only thing that matters is this project. And then when it's released, you know you also have to leave that bubble of the illusion that you've created around yourself, and then it feels strange. It's not as simple as, what's the most important thing ever, and we did it. It was the most important thing ever for us for a while, and we did it, but apparently the rest of the world has been moving on, doing other things at the same time. So it's like a confusing moment when you reunite with a reality around the bubble you lived in.
0: Do you consider yourself a little bit of a Stoic? That seems like a Stoic's mentality where you're not going to dwell too long on either the good or the bad, but you're just ready to plow ahead to the next thing.
1: You know what? I didn't think of myself as a Stoic very much, but other people have called me that. Hmm. And I made one of those personality tests that corporations do. You were rated in the end on different things from one to a hundred And something that shocked me quite much in that test was I rated 99 on craft, a hundred on diligence, around 95 on responsibility and around five on fun. (laughs) And I thought, what, but I'm in this for fun. And they said, yeah, probably you are, but it doesn't matter to you if it's fun or not, you're doing this for other reasons. It may be horrible. You're going to do it anyway. And in a weird way, that is what you consider to be fun. But it's not fun in the sense that we laugh and it's easygoing. It's fun because it's hard, actually. I think that's the kind of person I am.
0: Well, it's interesting to read that your background had nothing to do with gaming when you actually got into making games. It had more to do with your love of art growing up. But why is your lack of digital skills part of the origin of your career in games?
1: You know, when I was around 28 or something, I got a job in a web agency. And at that time I was a classically trained artist and my real job was making illustrations and paintings and album covers for rock bands, but I needed some money, so I just applied for a job and I got a job in a web agency. And at the time, this is mid nineties, making web pages was extremely boring. We had the Netscape palette with 256 colors and they hadn't even invented frames. So uh, web pages were just incredibly poor compared to my background. So I needed to do something in that web agency that was at least a little bit more fun than the web pages. And I began by diving into engineering and programming, just understanding those people who were my colleagues, because I'd never met an engineer. I'd never met anyone who had done any kind of software in my entire life. So to me, this was an unknown skill that looked like magic. So I started getting interested in that. And then I started also getting interested in, well, how does the collaboration here actually work between this kind of magician, the engineer, and that kind of magician, the artist? And at the time, this was a fairly unexplored combination of talents comparatively. So I took it upon myself to be the guy who created a good dynamic between the engineers and the artists, because honestly, because it was more fun than making web pages. So I started to tinker around with team dynamics. Apparently reasonably good at it because then that became my career. So I had no interest in management at all when I started working as a manager and I only realized in hindsight that I was actually doing a manager's job, you know, in creating uh, strong teams and good team dynamics and good procedures around feedback and everything. But I didn't even think of it as management. I just thought of it as not making web pages.
0: You describe a couple of epiphanous moments in this book. One has to do with a programmer named Oscar. What happened?
1: Yeah, That's a wonderful moment that connected where I was then, just leading talented teams and making web pages. Wasn't really any kind of entertainment industry job. But one day, one of my colleagues called Oscar came to work and he said, Hey, I've done this little Java applet. I had no idea what that even was. And it turned out that he had made a game, and it was a small side-scrolling space shooter game, really, really neat and tidy and elegantly made. But this was the first time in my life that I realized that computer games are actually made by humans. I hadn't even thought about it up until that point because I was playing games, but to me, they were just some weird thing that happened on my screen with godlike origins. I didn't even think about who would make them. But when I saw Oscar's applet, I knew him. And he was a real person. And I realized, oh, my God, humans make games. That's fantastic because that means that we can make games. (laughs) And from that point on, I got really interested in becoming a person who makes games, not just who plays them.
0: There are a number of important figures throughout your career in making games, and one of the first, and obviously we just talked about Oscar and the epiphany that he provided, but one of the first who you were with on a day-to-day basis for a long time was a guy named Kim Nordstrom. Who was Kim Nordstrom?
1: So yeah, after Oscar showed us that little game, I tried to team up with another colleague of mine called Jürgen. Jürgen was super, super talented, but really the solo album kind of a guy, so he was not meant for teamwork, but he knew I wanted to make games. And he said, I have a friend who's done a website for the Commodore 64, and he's actually a really good programmer. And I think you'd like hanging out with him. So I was introduced to Kim and we hit it off right away, right from the first moment. And we were an entire development team. You know, I could make pixel art and he could make the engineering side. And back in the mid nineties, that was all you needed. So we instantly became a complete development team. And we made a lot of games, very small games, very fast games, very tight production times. And, you know, some of it just for fun and some of it turned out to be for professional or for paying clients. But it was just a hobby in those days. But Kim was the guy who enabled me to be a person on the other side of that door that you go through the wardrobe's back door and you enter into Narnia. Kim was the guy who allowed me to step into Narnia and become a part of that fairy tale world where people created
0: games. What is Poo meets Peter Cadhammer and why is it an important moment in kicking off your gaming career?
1: <laughs> so Pooh was a fat bear, maybe a polar bear, who knows, a teddy bear. But he only did one thing in his entire life, and that was to shoot an investigative journalist, a real one whose name was Peter Codhammer. <laughs> we just spelt it differently in the game. And Peter Kodhama, the real one, wrote a fairly cruel character assassination article about an entrepreneur I knew and worked for, who, yes, admittedly, that guy was a little bit over the top and very full of himself. But I did find that the article in the newspaper was really, really cruel and unfair. And as a kind of a comment that I thought no one would notice, me and Kim just made this game called Poo Poo Meets Peter Kodhama. And we made it, I think, the same night that the article came out. And the only thing that happens in that game is that the teddy bear shoots a journalist and there's a splash of exaggerated pixel blood. (laughs) So you would have thought that was fairly innocent. But of course, because it was an attack, a threat, death threat, it wasn't. But it was perceived as, I don't think they even meant that seriously. But the magazine took advantage of the idea that they could have a big headline the day after. Uh, So... The day after we published our game, it was on the front page of that same magazine with big warlike headlines saying, you know, this company is striking back with a computer game, the revenge of the company. And it was like, oh God, you know, we had no idea. (laughs) I thought I was going to get fired for doing that. But what happened was that my manager at the time, I think was smart enough to realize that games can be very powerful you know, this is a way to tell stories or to immerse people or to pull people in. So they actually promoted me, not for making that game, not on paper at least, but the reality was that once we'd made that game, Kim and I got access to a lot more people and a lot more muscle and were able to embark on more ambitious projects together.
0: Well, you eventually move with Kim from Stockholm to Malmö to start MTG Modern Games. What was your strategy for games coming out of this studio?
1: Well, we were trying to become a little bit more professional and serious with game making. So we had a couple of colleagues. I think we were six or seven. Kim and I still were running most of it or designing most of it, but we really needed people with even more talent as artists and engineers to make the kind of games we were trying to make And MTG is a Swedish company that owns a lot of different media companies. And we thought we had figured something out that was really clever, which was that MTG owned a couple of movie franchises. And these are not international brands that you would know of. These are regionally famous Scandinavian brands, but nevertheless, in our world, those were big movies. And they owned a whole bunch of different TV channels in all of Scandinavia. So we thought if we could make the games for the movies, they could then promote the hell out of those through their TV channels and radio stations and whatnot. Maggot, they had daily papers as well. And then obviously our games would be super, super successful. That was what we thought we were going to do. And it didn't pan out exactly like that. But in the end, we actually did make one game according to that plan, which was called The Third Wave which was based on an MTG movie called The Third Wave, and it was advertised in those TV channels. And I think everyone forgot about it except us, who had worked on it.
0: Yeah, even though that game didn't make a splash in the gaming world, you have some fond memories of making that game. It sounds like a really cool game, for one, the concept of the cops versus drug dealer simulation. But what do you recall most fondly from The Third Wave?
1: I think it was the first time we were... Working as a team, and a team where people were genuinely interested in the same thing, which was the craft more than anything. When you all agree that we will create something awesome together, and that means we have to remove egos, we have to ignore turf wars, no talking about what's my mandate, what's yours. It was really a group that started to revolve around the idea of How can I make you better? How can I make you more successful? If you're successful, that helps me. That makes my job easier and the game better. So it became um, an experiment almost in dynamics. And it was the first time we also had the technical capacity to make a game that looked really good. I look at those screenshots now, and of course they have aged quite significantly, but I still think it's a really, really good looking game. And that was a very powerful experience for me coming from an arts background, realizing that the visual fidelity and the visual pleasure of games is getting better quickly. And it's going to become one of our most important, not selling points, but one of the most important facets of how you create immersion. And up until that point, that wasn't entirely clear because games had been 2D or very pixelated and Not particularly interesting visually, apart from a kind of a nostalgic retro perspective. But around third wave was when we could go into really, really interesting visual ideas, apart from just making a game that is fun to play. Actually, it is pretty fun to play. It's quite punishing now in hindsight. I like punishing games, so I think that's okay. But it's very far from the instant reward kind of games that many people gravitate towards today.
0: What do you mean by punishing? It just takes a lot of hours to get to the payoff?
1: No, not really. It's punishing in the sense that... Well, in the book, I admit that I was very inspired by the first Ghost Recon game, which Mm -hmm. is punishing in the same way, where every move you make, every choice you make, is likely to have some fairly important consequences. So it's the opposite of run and gun in the third wave you had to think and plan and wait and then time your moves according to what the enemy was doing so it was in many ways quite an intellectual game even though it was still of course a combat game but the actual gameplay was more about timing and thinking and understanding what the ai was doing i love those kind of games but it was also punishing in the sense that we had a system where you would actually die or your agents would permanent. you'd pick five agents and start your mission. And if you made a a huge mistake and one of your agents died, that agent was dead in the game forever. You could never revive that agent. And that was really punishing and really hard. And people got really angry or very emotional about it. But our biggest problem was actually to turn that into a well-balanced experience at the end, because a sloppy player would have lost so many agents that they actually couldn't complete the game so it was punishing in that sense and of course there was no way of knowing that when you started the game that if you screw up too much here in the beginning you're going to have a hard time at the end so people learned that the hard way but that's i guess also how games were made in those days we didn't hold the hands of the gamer uh, as much as we do today
0: Well, it was interesting to read that while you were at MTGE Modern Games, you were studying a lot of the great games at that time, trying to figure out how they did it, how they made that magic happen. And the process really reminded you of a class in art school called The Study of Old Masters. How so? So The Study of Old Masters was a class I had in art school, as you said,
1: where the professor, he kind of set us up in a trap. First lesson, he'd just say, hey, why don't you bring some piece of art that you like? Hmm. And everyone thought, but this is not education. He said, no, well, you know, just show me something that you think is cool. And we were like, what? That's it? Yep, yeah, that's your homework. <laughs> he said, just come back tomorrow and show me something that you like. And we was like, are there any boundaries or anything? No, he said, just something that you think is really, really well made from any period in the history of art. And we all thought, well, that sounds simple. And at the time, I was looking at Rembrandt. And I thought, oh, here's a really good painting by Rembrandt. And I brought that. Second day, the trap closes in. And he says, well, okay, good. Now you've chosen the piece of art that you admire. Cool. Now the rest of this class is about copying that exact same piece of art. So suddenly, I was not facing the challenge of finding a nice picture. I was facing the challenge of making a Rembrandt. And it was horrible. It was intimidating. It was scary. Hmm. And even if you are very, very methodic about it, then you start, you know, from way up in the left corner and you start copying everything you see, gradually you begin to understand, you know, what is he doing here? Rembrandt, how does this shadow on that piece of wall actually work? How did he create this illusion or this effect? So it was incredibly powerful as a class. To go through almost in our language we would say pixel by pixel but in the old school we would say brush stroke by brush stroke understanding how rembrandt had created a masterpiece and what was so infuriating with that class was that even you know after two weeks of doing nothing except copying rembrandt i realized that i'm nowhere as near as good as he is <laughs> i am miles miles and miles away from this master but it made me understand not only the genius but also the amount of work and dedication that is required to create great entertainment and i think what you refer to is in the chapter where we were making the third way we were also playing games all day games by others but as a method not just for fun we were actually looking at them freezing the frame going back rewinding recording making notes, copying menus, to understand how are these games actually made because we love them. They're fantastic. And they're way more advanced than what we're doing. But how? Let's actually figure it out. And I remember this one moment when Kim just took a Polaroid camera and he photographed a screen from Gran Turismo. And we sat and looked at that photograph. How have they created the reflections in the asphalt after rain? It's crazy. But it was also incredibly, incredibly educational. I think actually immersing ourselves in what we could understand of the creative process behind those experiences was probably the best school I've ever been to.
0: Tragically, the man who oversaw the empire that owned MTG, Jan Stenbeck, he died in August 2002. eventually led to your firing. Desperate and in search for answers, you called a man by the name of Martin Walfitz, the founder and managing director of Massive Entertainment, the company that paid your way to your first E3 in Los Angeles in 2002. Although you didn't call him looking for a job, he offered one. Why did you tell him no? <laughs> it took us a while to figure that out
1: over a couple of years. But to put it short, he said... I want to hire you. I think you can help me with my studio. He was the king of game development in our little bubble in South Sweden. We had a seven-man team, but we were all fired when Jan Stambeck died, as you said. Martin had 40 employees, which seemed ridiculously sophisticated and advanced and, well, just incomprehensible to me, but he needed help to run the studio and to get some of his visions turned into reality. So he said, yeah, you should work for me. And I thought, yeah, maybe I will. But then he started pushing me to abandon my Macintosh. I had always been in love with Macintosh since art school. So that was my personal favorite tool. And he said, yeah, yeah, forget that. PCs are way better in the gaming industry. So you just got to leave your Macintosh behind. So technically speaking, he's right. It still is. PCs are the tool of game development. However, this became like almost a philosophical question for me where I said, well, if you want to hire me, I think you should hire me for who I am and what I bring to the company. I don't think you should hire me and try to transform me into something that I'm not, like a PC fan. So I guess it was really childish. And you know, I'm almost ashamed of sharing this story because it seems so obstinate and petty. But at the time, I thought it was a profound question, like, I'm not going to work on anything but a Mac. If you're going to hire me, you're going to let me use the tools that I prefer. So I said no, and Kim and I embarked on another year of uh, adventuring and trying to succeed, but that adventure eventually failed too. And a year later, Martin called me, but then he had thought about my original, no thanks. And he said, you know what, David, you're right. If I hire you, I should hire you for who you are, Macintosh or not. It shouldn't really matter because if I want your skills, I will have to accept that those skills will be different than mine. And I want your preferences. I want your ideas and they're not going to be exactly the same as mine. So that made me then finally join Massive a year later. And I think this must've been in 2005, which was also the beginning actually of my AAA
0: adventure, to be honest. Did you stick with the Mac when you went to Massive or did you switch over to PC?
1: I am the only person, I think, out of 700 employees today who still has a Macintosh. (laughs) Uh, So that's how stubborn I am, I guess. (laughs) But uh, honestly, it feels childish. But I can justify it by saying that I am almost not interested in anything except the craft that people perform. And I'm really, really focused on creating conditions where people can be very good at their craft. Part of that is understanding that people use different tools to achieve magic results. And if you expect everyone to use the same tool, it's not going to help them. So part of my love for craftsmanship is saying use whatever tool you think is important or whatever tool you feel enables you to become fantastic. And in my case, I justify my choice of Macintosh with that reasoning. I say, listen, this is the tool I like. This is the tool that makes me efficient and able to perform. So why should anyone bother? So it's easy to justify it like that, but the IT guys still hate me.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's great. You almost have to have your own IT guy just for your Macintosh versus all the PCs uh, that are in the
1: office. I I can confirm that this is almost (laughs) entirely true, but it comes with a big sigh and rolling eyes. It's like, oh God, yes, we'll ask Anna. But remember, and even recently, my IT guy, who's been the same IT guy for 15 years, even recently, he approached me and he said, just so you know, you have an unauthorized interface to the organization. <laughs> I'm like, I guess, <laughs> sorry.
0: <laughs> it's when it pays off to be the managing director, I guess. I guess, I guess. So Massive was a great learning experience for you from the jump. What were the obvious and not-so-obvious reasons why they were able to succeed where you had previously failed?
1: So Massive had two things that were new to me. Or well, not entirely new, but they were taken to a level that I'd never experienced before. One was just the engineers of Massive. We had been working in macromedia and middleware, but Massive only had C++ programmers, which means that they create all of their software and all of their tools from scratch. So they didn't use any existing programs or software. It was all created from nothing really, which of course also if you have that kind of engineer allows you to create things that no one has seen before or to create ideas that are new or special effects that no one has ever seen or even audio or anything because you have the C++ programmers, you can shape the code into anything you want it to be. So that was a major leap for me to understand actually in a way that reminds a little bit of when I first saw that game by Oscar and realized that games are made by humans, this was a new kind of revelation where I realized that there are humans who create software out of nothing. They start with the machine, the hardware. They don't have anything between what they're typing and the machine. That was incredibly fascinating for me as well. And, and I understood very quickly the power that that unleashed or unlocked. And then the other thing that massive had was more on the social dynamic side where Martin, who is still a very good friend of mine was, and still is, but he was extremely ambitious and extremely pushy and extremely optimistic to a degree that I'd never ever experienced anyone before. And at the start, I thought he was over the top. I thought he was going too far. I thought he was being too naive. I thought privately that this guy doesn't know how to take no for an answer. But actually, when I started working with him closely, I realized that this is the kind of energy that a game studio might need. And that in fact, Martin's extreme ambitions were part of what was making Massive much more successful than any other local studio. And though in the beginning, I was not totally comfortable with embracing that because I felt like I was indulging too much in hyperbole. But after a while, I kind of embraced Martin's optimism as a principle. And I decided it's not because we are naive that we are saying we're going to make the best games in the world. It's because we believe it's more fun trying and it's more fun believing that it's possible than compromising and resigning and doing the B alternative from the start. So we agreed almost like an alliance that every day we'll come to work and have a no compromise attitude. We'll just ask people all the time, What is the best thing we could do? How can you be better? What is the best thing anyone has ever done? Almost like a refrain that we marinated the studio culture in. And then we also agreed privately that towards the afternoon, we probably need to be a little bit more pragmatic and practical so that we don't push people or projects to the point where they break. So we would consciously meet up, not every day, but on a regular basis and modify our ridiculously ambitious ideas into something that was still realistic. But then the next day, we'd come back again with unrealistic hopes for what we could achieve together. And I think we've kept that spirit quite a lot in massive. I've learned a lot from Martin in that sense that optimism as a principle is very powerful. And it's one of those things that can actually transform the reality that we are in. So it's a nice tool. It's often mistaken for naivety. But I think that's unfair to us who are optimists. <laughs>
0: No, you aim high, and even if you don't necessarily get there on a given day, you've still gotten a lot higher than a lot of other people in the industry, and occasionally you do reach those heights, and at that point you achieve greatness.
1: That's how it tends to happen for quite a lot of people, and once you study the career or the biography of very successful entertainers or movie directors, most of them have almost a decade of just hard work before they start seeing their first big successes. Not everyone. There are some young superstars, of course, or overnight sensations. But for most people that I've worked with, it's a long journey and a lot of bouncing back and a lot of failures, lots of false starts, perhaps more than failures. But all of those are educational if you think about it in the right way. And all of those have the potential to make you significantly better if you just embrace them. And that's why one of my important principles as an artist but also as a manager is to embrace failure not because it's comfortable but embrace failure because every moment that doesn't work contains an important truth about how you will succeed so looking at something that doesn't go well and blame it on someone else is actually denying yourself the education that's going to make you succeed and this maybe sounds a little bit hippy-dippy but I think it's a very important philosophy that has followed me all my life, which is look at failure as a hard lesson. Don't look at it as something that happened to you for no reason.
0: It is truly the greatest chance to learn something. And on top of that, it usually involves you exiting your comfort zone. So you're having to do something that is foreign to you, which forces you to focus a little bit more and actually pay attention to what's happening in the moment.
1: Yes, you're phrasing it really, really well. And I think also the, uh, this isn't always true, but when we position ourselves as a victim, when we're not really a victim, I think we take away power from ourselves. Because if we consider that we are instrumental in what is happening to ourselves, it also gives us a lot of power over what's gonna happen next. And I've had this fight many times with people. And now to be clear here, I'm not talking about people who are real victims in really, really damaging situations. I'm talking about a bad day at work. But if you look at the bad day at work as something that you created, you're also keeping the power to change it in your own hands. Hmm. And it's not great to think of, you know, oh shit, this is my own fault. I hate that feeling, I honestly do. But I also acknowledge that when I think this might be my own fault, it means that I have power. And that's the problem when people consider themselves to be victim of external circumstances is that they also then remove the power from their own hands and they delegate that power to some unknown entity that, oh, this just happened to me and I'm so unlucky. I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man here, but I I do think it's very important for anyone who wants to succeed in the entertainment industry to realize that the hard lessons are super uncomfortable, but they are also very important to embrace.
0: I was just about to say people that aren't able to look in the mirror to see what they need to maybe do differently to make a situation better, the people who lean way too much on good and bad luck. But you said it right there. You said unlucky. So we're definitely on the same page there. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on World in Conflict because we have uh, a little bit more to get to, and I don't want to take up all day with you, David. But your first major project at Massive was World in Conflict. You and your colleagues got far enough in the process that Massive's parent company, Vivendi Universal Games, or VUG, wanted to announce world in conflict, how does an announcement affect the development of a game?
1: Good question. So announcements are mostly good news for the developer. They have a couple of effects on the team, but the main effect, as I see it, is that once a game is announced, the publisher is committed to financing it until the end. So in a way, once it's announced, you gain power as a developer and you have a better hand to play. In a way, you could say that the publisher is a hostage to the fact that they announce your game. And I don't suggest that anyone should abuse that hand and become you know, an idiot, but it does change the dynamic on the floor in the team that you know almost for certain that what we're working on now is going to be released and is going to get the marketing push and it's going to be out there in the hands of gamers. So it becomes more real. And I've always, being quite anxious with projects until they have been announced. Once they're announced, it's like the season has begun. We're not at the Super Bowl yet, but we're certainly going to play the first 16 matches.
0: You're a bit of a fanatic about the space race between the U.S. and Russia 50-plus years ago. Why do you admire American astronaut Michael Collins, and how does it relate to your story?
1: <laughs> so my two favorites are uh, Gagarin, first man in space, and Michael Collins. Michael Collins is a little bit less known, but I love him. I think he's the ultimate space hero because he was on the first Apollo flight where men actually stepped on the moon. And we all know this. We know Neil Armstrong was the first man to set foot on the moon, and we know that Buzz Aldrin was the second, and you know they're superheroes. But what a lot of people have forgotten was that this could never have been possible unless there was a third astronaut, Michael Collins, who stayed in the capsule or in the spaceship in orbit around the moon, because someone needed to wait for the two astronauts on the moon to come back and then reconnect with the capsule and then reignite the engines and fly back to the moon. So for a while there, Michael Collins was the loneliest man that had ever existed in the history of mankind because he was on the other side of the moon on the dark side of the moon alone with no ability to talk to Neil or Buzz or even to anyone on earth because he was in radio shadow. And I admire him so much for being that guy who, hey, we have three jobs. You're all going to the moon. And one of these jobs is significantly less cool than the other two and you have a guy like Michael Collins that says, I'll do that. Okay. You're probably not going to get famous. Cool. It's likely that everyone will forget that you were actually part of that crew. Yes. I still like it. I will be proud of my achievement. You know, I'm not doing it for fame. I'm doing it because it's historical and I think it's important and someone needs to fly that ship. Um, In no way do I compare myself to Michael Collins otherwise, but I have felt a little bit like him sometimes in my job because I've been so keen on promoting my core team, you know, my creative directors, my producers, my art directors, making sure that they have a chance to get on stage and to fulfill their own dreams. And it gives me real pleasure in seeing that. But it's also sometimes lonely. Sometimes you feel like that guy who is, I think I'm just driving the ship here and, you know, suddenly I'm in radio shadow. And it's a bit of a weird feeling that you invest so much in a moment that should feel like success, like probably setting foot on the moon or releasing a game. But once it actually happens, you're not really there. So you have this strange emotional distance to the magical moment that we've all been working towards. And I think I tried to describe that a little bit in the book by talking about Michael Collins. But he seemed to be a really cool guy and he wrote a very good book also about how he experienced his adventures that I can strongly
0: recommend. Great explanation there. As far as World in Conflict goes, ultimately VUG didn't appreciate the game. And they end up severing ties with Massive. They actually give you guys four weeks to find a buyer. Well, that was extended by a couple of weeks, ultimately Ubisoft stepped up to buy Massive. What was Ubisoft to the gaming industry at that time?
1: I think Ubisoft then and still have always been considered to be the home for the more creative or the more innovative or the more experimental still AAA level games. They've always been considered also, I think, a challenger to Activision on one side, EA on the other. Now we live in a world where the Western publishers aren't necessarily the largest ones. But for a long time, Ubisoft was number three, the constant underdog, you know, the constant challenger. And they tried a lot of different ideas to break through and get to the top, which resulted in some quite original games. And that's what Ubisoft was to us when they acquired Massive. Although I have to say we were super surprised that they did acquire us because they didn't really do any kind of classical due diligence. So it was a surprise to us when it happened, but a nice one.
0: So Martin actually told you about the acquisition, but also said that he was leaving Massive. Despite Ubisoft's best efforts, he does end up leaving the company and they actually tab you to take his place. Your first order of business as the new head of Massive was to attend Ubisoft's annual strategy meeting in Paris with a kickoff dinner at one of the most famous restaurants in the world. Why was it such an awkward dinner for you initially and what eventually put you at ease that night? (laughs) It was a a tough start because I hadn't even
1: aspired to uh, take Martin's job. And I believed at the time that Massive was going to crash and burn without him because it was really a studio that was built around him. He had founded it. It was his ideas. And he was the guy who kept pushing the rest of us. So I was very unsure of myself and the future of the studio. I think I accepted the offer to become the managing director more out of a sense of duty than ambition. I felt I had a responsibility towards my friends who were in the studio. So when I went to Paris, I felt like the failure, like I was not the one anyone had wanted to acquire. But at the beginning of the evening, trying to make me feel better, some of the most influential people in Ubisoft waved at me and they said, oh, hello, new guy. Oh, come on, sit with us. Yes, great. And I felt, oh, cool. Okay. They're actually giving me a chance here. But as soon as I had sat down by the table, they all switched back to French. And then I sat through a two and a half hour long dinner, understanding absolutely nothing, feeling <laughs> extremely uncomfortable. And they had the greatest time. They had known each other for a long time and they were laughing and drinking and you know, telling stories and jokes and you know, just having a blast together. And I think that was their way of saying, you're welcome, but you're still not one of us. And in the end, as I was about to leave, I tried to get out early. Just as I was about to leave, Yves Guillemot caught me, and he's a very, very pleasant, soft-spoken man, a very, very, I, I think, caring CEO. And I think he just gave me the reassurance I needed from that first meeting that, you know, we'll take care of you. We'll help you succeed. So when I left, I felt really good about it, but it certainly started off as an uphill battle.
0: Well, the first game that Ubisoft requested from Massive was something that modernized the Tom Clancy series of games, including Rainbow Six, Ghost Recon, and Splinter Cell. But you were also working on Far Cry 3 at the same time. How difficult was it juggling these two projects at once? Oh, that was really, really hard. Massive had always been a studio that was
1: only working on one project at a time. So everything revolved around the same project. Every single conversation was advancing the same agenda. And that's a pretty nice way to work actually. But then we got acquired by Ubisoft and we were quickly getting engaged in several things at once, and we had no experience in that. So we made all of the mistakes that any company could do in that expansive phase. The core teams were competing with each other. We had different processes. We had different cultures. We had different technologies. It was really, really impossible to make that merge into a functioning studio. And we also had another built in tension into those projects where the division was our own. It was our own IP and we had a lot of control over what was happening. Whereas Far Cry was an IP that was run out of Montreal, the Ubisoft studio there. So on Far Cry, we were what is called a partner studio or a co-development studio. And the dynamics of that, are really different from running your own IP. So one team was playing gods that could create a new franchise. And the other one felt like factory workers trying to work for a big brother that we didn't know that well at the time. That was really difficult. In the end, I must say I'm extremely, extremely proud of what we achieved with Far Cry 3 and then with The Division. So in the end, I think we juggled those two projects really well. But they were really difficult to ship, both of them were extremely hard to ship. And I think I explained that pretty clearly in the book that I have very mixed emotions about coming to the finishing line. It's not at all as straightforward as success makes you happy. It's much more complicated than that.
0: You released Far Cry 3 in November of 2012, and it was a pretty good response from critics, gamers and your bosses, correct? Oh, yeah, Far Cry
1: 3 was a major hit right from the start.
0: As a matter of fact, your bosses asked you to lead Far Cry 4. How did you respond to that?
1: They didn't really ask us to lead Far Cry 4. I think they just said that, hey, this worked out great. Let's work on Far Cry 4. I was not happy or excited about that question. I was expecting it because Far Cry 3 was going so well. But Far Cry 4 would have meant that we would have been codependent on technology that wasn't ours, and also brand management and franchise management that wasn't ours. And we're quite autonomous as a group. And we had decided before we shipped Far Cry 3 that we had a couple of things we wanted to achieve with Far Cry 3. And one of them was not to work as a co-development partner ever again. It just doesn't suit us. And to be honest, I think looking at it from the other side, we're probably a horrible co-development studio because we are just fiercely autonomous. So we're not a great service to anyone except our own agenda. So I said no. No, we're not going to work on Far Cry 4. And that turned out to be a corporate faux pas, meaning something I really shouldn't have done. And there was a big fight over that at the time, but I'm stupid enough or stubborn enough (laughs) to enter into that discussion with the understanding that I could be fired over it. Mm. And I had already accepted that as a possible outcome, which is fantastic if you want to negotiate hard. It makes it almost impossible for the other side to win you over because at some point they realize that you're willing to go to the bitter end and get fired over this. And I'm like, yes, I am. And if that's genuine, when you say that, you're very likely to win that negotiation. It's not going to make anyone like you. I'm just saying that, but you will probably win that negotiation if you're willing to push it that far, because it's almost blackmail. But we were so convinced that we had done what we should with Far Cry and that we needed to move on. So we were willing to bet everything on our own autonomy and freedom, which at that time meant invest for real in the division. And that's what we did also with the main part of the team.
0: And that's right. The division is what the Tom Clancy game came to be called. You experienced another epiphany with the division. What was this moment of clarity that allowed you to distinguish the division from other Clancy games?
1: In the beginning, when we looked at Clancy, you know, there's this typical Clancy story where some soldier or ex-soldier is asked to save the world from a big threat and then a small group of people, sometimes just one individual, the soldier manages to do just that. So the thing that we're afraid of never happens because the hero stopped it from happening. That's the typical Clancy. And we thought that that had been done and explored really well in other branches of the Clancy universe. And we wanted to create something different. And then one of our writers said, well, what if the bad thing actually happens and the hero, the people who should have stopped it are unable to, where would that put us? And this was one of the epiphanies we had when we realized that's a Clancy story that's never been told, which is we failed to stop the bad thing from happening. And from there on, we tried to figure out what would be a really, really bad event that could happen that wouldn't have been stopped by a typical Clancy hero. And we came up with this idea, which at the time seemed like a fantasy, but now seems almost insensitive. Hmm. We came up with this idea of releasing a pandemic on Manhattan. And in the case of the game, the virus is much more aggressive than COVID is today. So people die in droves and it becomes almost post-apocalyptic and the government just shuts down all of Manhattan because they're so afraid of the virus spreading outside the island. So they basically just give up on Manhattan. Then the big question, well, who is the hero under those circumstances? And that is where Tom Clancy's The Division starts, where the hero is probably not your typical hero. It's probably someone else. Who is the sheriff of that post-apocalyptic Manhattan when it's abandoned and cut off? And that for us created a completely different Clancy-esque idea, but a narrative that hadn't been explored previously in the Clancy universe.
0: I think this at least partially caused you to become more interested in how humans psychologically handle stressful situations and wanting to further research disaster scenarios you had your core team sign up for survival training what did that consist of and what was the biggest lesson that you learned from the survival training that you then applied to the division
1: (laughs) you know what i wish the entire core team had signed up for it i thought that was a great idea i'm perpetually curious so i said well you know what None of us really know what this is like to be without food and water and, you know, no electricity and be afraid of our own fantasies. Let's experience it, I said, optimistically. And everyone on the core team said, hell no, we're (laughs) never ever going to expose ourselves to that. So I was really disappointed. And I thought, well, you know, I think that would have been fun, but maybe it's just me. But then after a while, the creative director, uh, the original creative director of the division came to me and said, you know what, I'll do it if you do it, David. And that was actually never my intention. I thought they should do it. But (laughs) when he came in, he said, I'll do it if you do it. I said, okay, yeah. So in the end, it was just me and the creative director, nicknamed CC. And we went to a Swedish forest. And it turned out to be a little bit worse, I think, than the, the guy who organized it was an old paratrooper, but he was like 150 years old, but still twice as fit and twice as agile as any of us. But I think it ended up being a little bit harder than he intended it to, because the rain came really hard on the first day. And then it just kept on raining throughout the whole experience when we were lost and cold and wet and, you know, uh, without cell phones or any skills to survive in the forest at all. So that turned out to be really tough, but a fantastic experience. I think it made the game better. I definitely think CC brought home some of the ideas from there. And we learned a ton of things, you know, I'm not even sure I could answer your question about the one thing that I learned because we learned many, but it made me realize that a lot of my life has revolved around survival ideas and, you know, just surviving in the game industry or surviving as a struggling artist or surviving in massive, which was really hard in the beginning. There was lots of office politics that I had to navigate through and then surviving, becoming a managing director. And I realized that this is kind of a part of my life is to end up in challenging situations and figure out ways to bounce back and still enjoy, actually, the experience. And that was a good way to get to know myself.
0: The game, The Division, goes live on March 8th, 2016. Anybody who plays video games knows how big it was and is. How did it feel to stand on that gaming mountaintop? Uh, You know, it's. I think the days leading
1: up to release, especially the beta, those were genuinely fantastic. That was magic to see it from our little control room on the sixth floor in our brick building in Malmo at night, when you'd see first Europe is live, and then the US comes on board and you see all of the charts spike upwards. And then if you stay long enough, you see Asia coming on as well. That was one of my favorite experiences actually from the gaming industry. But when the game actually launched for real, I was so exhausted and I was so cognizant of how important that release was to us and to all of the people I care about. I think I was more terrified than happy when we launched the game. And I remember thinking that this is just an experience about dodging a bullet. There is nothing fun about this, which isn't great, actually. After five years of work in an entertainment industry, it should be fun. And that should be the day when you celebrate with champagne. But I've found that quite many people who embark on these massive entertainment projects, they are so drained towards the end that they're actually not capable of enjoying the release. And I remember reading about George Lucas. You know, he left America and he hid somewhere in Hawaii when Star Wars was released because he was so convinced that the movie was bad Hmm. and they had to call him and say, Hey, listen, you need to come back and see the lines outside the cinemas. And he said, why, what are people lining up for? No, it's your movie. And he could not compute that at the moment because he just came from a bubble that was making the movie trying to adjust again to the reality outside that bubble. And to him, it wasn't a great experience. And it took him many months to understand it. And I felt that it took me nine months to enjoy what we did and appreciate what we accomplished with the division. So that's a fairly long time of detoxing before you can look at your own work soberly.
0: Speaking of George Lucas's industry, a movie based on The Division was announced at last year's E3. How exciting was that for you? And when can we expect to see it on Netflix?
1: I'm not sure if Netflix has announced any dates, so I'm not going to try to screw that up. Um, (laughs) But I I know it's progressing. I know who is directing. I know who is writing. I know who the actors are. And I have a pretty good idea of the story that they will tell. And if they execute on where they are today, that's going to be a great movie, a really good movie. There are a couple of ways to make a division movie, and some of them I think would be silly or over the top. But there's also a way to make a very, very elegant division movie that is action-packed and filled with all of the adventure you'd expect, but also takes on some of the more profound questions, which are about... Who are you when society collapses? Who is the person who has the right to interpret the soul of America? In a pandemic-riddled Manhattan, someone represents America, but who? And what is their interpretation of what that means? There are some interesting themes there underneath the traditional action movie layer that I think can be extremely interesting in a movie and well-acted as well. For us, this is the part of my career when it feels like I must have died somewhere and come to some kind of early paradise, because now we're doing things that I only dreamt of as a fan. Having a Hollywood movie made based on a game that we created on an IP and stories that we invented back home in Sweden, it's in many ways incomprehensible that we have come that far. And I'm extremely humbled and grateful for seeing this happen. And in a way it's similar to working with James Cameron on the avatar games. It's something that I could have dreamt about that as a fan. And especially if you've read the book, you know, how far away we were from that. And we talked earlier about, you know, when we were studying the masters, other people who had made fantastic games. At the time, I could not imagine how I would ever become a person who was working with entertainment on that level. So to be here now working with James Cameron on one side, having Netflix making a movie on our game on the other, this is uh, the fantasy part of the journey for sure.
0: And people should definitely check out the Dream Architects for your story on the first time you met James Cameron and he asked you a question. You gave an answer that he may or may not have enjoyed in the uphill battle that followed that ultimately led to you landing the partnership of getting to work on the video games for the Avatar films that are forthcoming. Last question for you, David. You write that Massive was the result of a year of thinking that lasted a decade. What do you mean by that? Hmm. that's uh, very well spotted
1: i have to say there was a year there when we were put on hold because of the deal that was going down between vivendi universal and activision and that deal was so big that it had to go through the antitrust bureau first in the us and then europe i'd never experienced something like that But what happened to us in our little studio was that we were just told to wait I said this needs to go through the antitrust bureau. And in the meantime, don't do anything. And we said, what do you mean? Don't do anything. And it was bizarre because we were considered only as a financial asset period, and we should not change or move or do anything. We were just an asset that should wait for the antitrust bureau to come to their conclusion. So we were left alone, unsupervised with no deadlines and, you know, no specific directions except shut up and don't do anything. And Martin and I are too restless to just sit there and wait. And, you know, I think I write about it in the book that maybe we should have just gone on a long vacation, but we didn't. We took that year to think about who are we, what do we want to do? What kind of prototypes should we be building? What do we really want from technology? And since nobody asked us what we were doing, we just followed our own instincts and started a bunch of things. When I wrote the book, I realized that almost everything that happened in the decade after that year of meditation, all of the successes we were able to achieve in the decade that followed in one way or the other have their origin in that year of thinking. And I hadn't seen that pattern before I wrote the book, but then suddenly it became clear to me that, oh wait, hang on, Far Cry, that's actually started over here or Snowdrop, our game engine that started over here. And actually even the division has its origin in that year, even before we were acquired by Ubisoft. And this is something I think about now because when companies like mine and and other game studios are in the middle of production and, you know, success and things are happening and deals are being made, It's a very intense period, and it's really interesting to go through. But when do you stop and think? When do you actually stop and think about, is this the right thing? Or if we did it in the right way, would we do it like this? And I'm a little bit worried about that for a lot of game studios, that we run too quickly and we forget to analyze what we're about to do. Because then we embark on three or four or even five-year projects. So it's a significant period of our life that we dedicate to a project so maybe this is probably one of the things I I would suggest maybe we get too excited and jump on projects too quickly maybe we should be a little bit more picky before we invest five years in a game project but that's what I meant when I wrote that that massive is really the result of a year of meditation that gave us a decade of success
0: David Pohlfeldt is the managing director at Massive Entertainment, whose work in gaming includes industry-defining AAA games such as Assassin's Creed Revelations, Far Cry 3, and Tom Clancy's The Division, and he's now a published author. His new book is titled The Dream Architects, Adventures in the Video Game Industry. David, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book.
1: Thank you, Trey, and be safe, everyone.
0: And thank you for listening today. You can check out all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.